We first discussed direct contracting and ACOs way back in episode 121, which was in August of 2016, a long time ago. What's changed since then? What's new? And what does the future look like? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change you want to see. This episode is brought to you by Shift Shaper Strategies. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. Clarify your message so you win more clients, crush your sales goals, and build your practice. Learn more at shiftshaperstrategies.com. And now, here's your host, StoryBrand Certified Guide and Chief Transformation Strategist at Shift Shaper Strategies, David Saltzman. And we're pleased to welcome back our old friend, Eric Parmenter. Our Eric is the VP of Health Systems at Quantum Health, and he is our resident expert on all things direct contracting and ACOs. And welcome, Eric. Good to have you back. Hey, great to see you, David. It's great to be back. A lot of time has passed since 2016. It sure has. So, you know, generally speaking, how's the landscape different than when we first chatted six years ago? Well, it's a great question, and I wish I could say in the past six years, there's been amazing progress in the field of value-based care, ACOs, and direct contracting for employers. The reality is there's been minor progress, and of course, we did have a worldwide pandemic in the middle of that time, which probably put things on pause for about two years. But even with that being said, even up to the pandemic, there was slow movement from self-funded employers, typically larger, those with a thousand or more employees, towards various types of, call it what you wish, value-based care arrangements. They could take the form of direct contracting in a number of different ways. There's been some progress, but it's been pretty slow. So let's then re-level set, and maybe that's a good thing to do for the audience since it's been a while. What are some of the macro issues that are facing employers today and, and maybe over the next couple of years? Well, I think we are in for a rough ride in the next couple of years with respect to increased cost for employer-sponsored health benefit plans. We have had pent-up demand because of the pandemic where major procedures were delayed or foregone altogether, and those conditions underlying those procedures did not go away. They might have gotten worse. And so that demand is coming back, and it's coming back with a vengeance, if you will. But it's not just utilization or demand, it's also unit cost. We are in the highest inflationary time that we've been in in, I think, something like 40 years. And to think that that's not going to make its way into the healthcare system and the underlying healthcare prices is a mistake because prices are going up, health systems have to pass through their increased cost. In negotiations with the carriers and the rates, there will be increases in rates, in prices. And when you add increased demand to increased prices, you can expect quite a bit of pressure on employers to keep up with the rising cost of healthcare. Well, and on top of that, a lot of hospitals and hospital systems are posting last year's financials now 
And they've had two years of not being able to do elective procedures, which elective in hospital speak is a word that means lucrative to the rest of us. And so there's going to be that pressure on the cost as well. And that I think, you know, maybe brings this conversation about direct contracting, you know, to the forefront even more because you got to employ every tool that you can. So we talking about direct contracting between employers and providers or health systems or both. Well, I think it's both. It's between employers and it could be an individual provider group. I think it's more commonly done with health systems. And a health system, David, is defined as a healthcare organization with one or more hospital or at least one hospital and one physician group in some kind of a common ownership. We tend to think of the large health systems that have multiple hospitals, multiple physician groups, ambulatory care centers, urgent care centers. And those are the more likely entities to contract with employers because employers want to have depth and breadth of services available to their members. So as we stand today, as we're recording this in 2022, what percentage of employers have an ACO or participate in some kind of direct contracting arrangement? Well, according to the Business Group on Health, 34% of employers will tell you that they have an ACO in 2022. And the most common type of an ACO is a high-performance network. Now, this can be through a carrier or through direct contracting. Uh, Through a carrier, a high-performance network generally looks like a narrower network with fewer hospitals in it and some of the higher-priced hospitals removed from it. So let's take a market that has three major health systems in it. A high-performance network may have two of the three, and they may have removed the the highest price of the three. Now, that is a form of high-performance network uh, through a carrier. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that the funding is any different than a broad open access PPO. The funding may still be based on what we call fee-for-service, which is hospital, doctor, does a procedure, submits the codes, they get paid based on the pre-negotiated rate. It just means we're narrowing the network and kicking out some of the higher-priced providers. A more of a value-based care arrangement has more at stake where the providers are at risk for cost, quality, and other outcomes, including patient satisfaction. The direct contracted form of this is probably somewhere around 3 to 5% of employers are doing a true direct contracted ACO where the providers are more at risk. That, again, has been low adoption, again, 3 to 5% of all employers that have done it. But I think we're now at a point where we're going to see this increase. Because of what we just said, healthcare costs are going to come roaring back, Employers feel like they can't cost shift anymore to employees. I feel like that train left the station years ago. We have employees that are trying to pay rent and groceries and gas and all of their household expenses are up. And so the last thing their employer wants to do, who also happens to be in a war for talent right now, is raise deductibles, premiums, and co-pays for the employee And they've tried all the other strategies. They've tried the wellness programs. They've tried the disease management programs. They've tried point solutions galore. And they all have their place and they've all done some good. But collectively, it hasn't really staved off the increasing cost of health care and what is expected to be an even higher increase in the next few years. So this should 
prompt employers to ask their consultants, to ask their advisors, hey, what else is there? And I think the more enlightened advisors are going to say, well, hey, let's look at value-based care. Let's look at an ACO. This may take the form of direct contracting. If you're not ready to go all the way there, it may be looking at the carrier-based, you know, narrower network approach. There is some disruption there by having fewer doctors and hospitals in the network, but it's less disruptive than raising premiums and out-of-pocket costs. And because of what those of us who are inside the industry know as the inverse relationship, generally speaking, between quality and cost of care, this isn't just a cost play, is it? It it also is a quality play. It can't be just a cost play. And in fact, healthcare, higher price does not mean higher quality. It might mean that if you're buying a diamond at the jewelry store, uh, maybe. But in healthcare, I can't speak to that. I'm not an expert in jewelry. But in healthcare, higher cost is not at all correlated with higher quality. And what employers need to focus on is quality based on outcomes that adhere to evidence-based medicine. These are episodes of care that are established by the leaders in the industry, meaning the experts in the industry, the, the physician groups that say, here's how we define variants in healthcare. Here's how we define the types of procedures that need to be conducted. Take back surgery as an example. 85% of all back surgeries are potentially unnecessary. And at minimum, physical therapy should have been tried first. When you find a pattern of care where a doctor does a back surgery when the patient has had no physical therapy first, that's cause for alarm. And that says quality is not being adhered to. And by the way, it wasn't an insurance company that decided that's the standard for quality. It's the association of physicians who perform those kind of surgeries who say, this is what quality looks like. And by the way, when you have higher quality, you have lower cost ultimately. Almost always. That's what I said. There's an inverse relationship and most people don't understand that. And while I said price was not correlated with quality, quality is correlated with lower cost. So in other words, just take the example of back surgery again. I was looking at some of our data And I saw a variance in back surgeries, 3,000 different back surgeries across all of our clients. And the prices range from $25,000, I'll say, to $175,000. I actually saw one at $700,000. There must have been some complicating factors there. But $25,000 to $175,000 variance in back surgeries suggest there's not an adherence to a protocol to an episode of care, and something's out of whack. It's either the pricing structure or the quality in delivery. And when the proper procedures are adhered to, you have lower cost overall. So high quality means lower cost in the long run, total cost of care. And now, a word from our sponsor. It's a fact. Salespeople and organizations lose opportunities because they don't clearly communicate their value. In today's market, your story is your message. It should be crystal clear, perfectly arranged, and precisely targeted to attract the clients you want. As a certified story brand guide, we use the exclusive SB7 process to create that story. 
and the websites and collateral that deliver it. If your message isn't cutting through the noise, we can help. Visit us at shiftshaperstrategies.com to learn how we can help you find, clarify, and deliver a message that wins clients, crushes sales goals, and builds your practice. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. So learn more and schedule that call today at shiftshaperstrategies.com. That's shiftshaperstrategies.com. And now back to our discussion. So what have been some of the and both real and perceived roadblocks to gaining broader implementation of these techniques? It's a great question, David. And I think there are at least three roadblocks to implementation of direct contracting at ACOs. The first one is it's complicated. So the complexity. If employers and their advisors aren't sure of how to put it all together, then they may give up and move on to an easier solution. The second one is the providers haven't been ready to take risk until more recently. You could say the Affordable Care Act was passed in 2010. Part of the Affordable Care Act brought on ACOs, at least the official ACOs as defined by Medicare, and providers began to make investments to to be ready to take risk. Well, those investments have taken a long time to become integrated and ready to go, and now they are for the most part, certainly with all your major health systems. And so you have to have readiness on the part of the provider, hasn't been there in the past, is really starting to be there now. You have to have a way to figure out how to do this, the complexity, and there are a lot of conveners now that are ready and know how to put all the pieces together. And then the third one is you have to have an employer, and maybe this is the most important one, who is willing to go there. And by going there, meaning, hey, there's a trade-off here, some disruption, perhaps a narrower network, almost certainly a narrower network, perhaps more strict protocols in terms of how you engage with this plan than just open access, go wherever you want, almost every provider's in the network. But that trade-off is in exchange for lower cost and higher quality. And while employers certainly don't want to disrupt their employees from a premium, from an out-of-pocket cost perspective, and they prefer not to disrupt physician relationships either, they will have to make some trade-offs and perhaps offer an option where there are fewer choices, but those choices are higher quality. So where do carriers fit in, or is this just a play for you if you're, if you're self-insured? Well, carriers fit in in a number of different ways, and they are very important players in this equation. First of all, they have their own products, their own value-based care products. And while those have largely been upside only and slightly narrower networks up to this point, I think we're starting to see carriers have more high-performance networks in the true sense of the word that are based on ACO structures, value-based care, more risk. So there will be more of those options going forward, and we're already starting to see some really good ones in the market. In a direct contract, uh, carriers may serve as a wrap network around a direct contracted network administered by a third-party administrator. So while the employer moves to a TPA and a direct contract, they may still want that broad contract either as a tier two or as an alternative option 
to their direct contract through, say, an EPO plan design. So carriers are there. They're not going away, and they can play a very important role in this, but it may not be the traditional role that they've played in the past. Are the carriers amenable to the data feeds that are necessary if they become a wrap network for a smaller high-performance network that's administered by a TPA? Our experience is that the third-party administrators are more nimble with respect to data and data feeds and integration and can facilitate these types of arrangements more readily uh, than some of the the older ASO-type platforms that you see at the carrier level. Also, the willingness of the TPAs to manage alternative arrangements is stronger than, than that of the carriers. So again, it's not a matter of, I'm not here to bash carriers, but to say these types of arrangements are a little bit different and they need more nimble flexibility from a data perspective, from an administrative perspective, from a plan design perspective. And we see that flexibility a little more available in the third-party administrator world of which there are many really strong TPAs out there, some of which are owned by the carriers. Well, that's true. You know, while we're talking about data going back and forth, let's talk a little bit about analytics and reporting and what employers should expect if they engage in this kind of an arrangement. Well, the first thing from a reporting perspective should be a scorecard that shows how are we performing against our goals and objectives. So at the heart of value-based care is a relationship between the employer and the provider. I call it fixing the broken triangle, David. If there are three main parties to a health plan contractually, there's the employer, who's the buyer of health care. There's the provider or health system that's the seller of health care. Buyer and seller in an economy represent a relationship where you negotiate terms, where you negotiate price, you negotiate quality, you negotiate goals and objectives. But the triangle is broken because there's a third party here, all the intermediaries, the carriers, et cetera, the PBMs. And heretofore, there hasn't been a relationship between employer, buyer, and provider, seller. It's all flown through this third point of the triangle the intermediaries, brokers, consultants, carriers, PBMs, et cetera. Not that those aren't important parties and not that they go away, but there needs to be a relationship between the buyer and seller of healthcare. Fundamentally, that's what value-based care is about. And so if there's a relationship and it's contractual, there needs to be metrics established. Here's what we're trying to accomplish. And then the reporting and analytics, which is your question, needs to show how are we doing against those goals and objectives that have been agreed to by the buyer and the seller, by the provider and the health system. So that's number one. Underneath that, the kinds of metrics are things like uh, disease states, movement of care in system. So in system utilization, uh, you don't want leakage uh, to other providers that are not part of this arrangement. How are we moving the needle on closing gaps in care? A gap in care might be a woman who needs a mammogram, a man that needs a colonoscopy above a certain age. There's a certain percentage that's happening now. You want to improve that percentage that's closing a gap in care. And on and on and on. Readmission rates, uh, variance from 
evidence-based medicine. You want to be able to report on those metrics so that you can see that you're making progress on both cost, quality, and uh, let's not forget patient satisfaction. So we've got about 30 seconds left. Where do you see the future of this? You alluded to this earlier. Do you think the take-up curve is going to be steeper than it has been since we talked last about this? And what should an advisor do if they want to learn more? I think the future looks like large employers are going to start more direct contracting in key markets where they have concentrated large numbers of employees. That will then spread to the middle market, and eventually it'll spread to the smaller market. I think the the enlightened brokers and consultants can help bring those parties together in their given markets. But again, you kind of need an anchor tenant or a large employer to establish the relationship in a given market. This might be a five a Fortune 500 company or a large school district or a college or a university. And they form the direct contract, and then it's opened up to other employers to participate in their own versions of that contract in that market. And eventually, it'll go downstream to a smaller self-funded audience. I don't think this really is for fully insured clients. This is for the self-funded marketplace. But as we all know, that number keeps going down in terms of the size of employers that are ready to self-fund. And that's a great place to end our conversation today. Eric, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with the audience. And since you're one of our favorite guests, we hope you'll come back soon. Thank you. I'd be delighted to. And thank you for having us. Obviously, you can uh, find out more information at quantum-health.com. That's the company I'm affiliated with. Or reach out to me at eric.parmenter at quantum-health.com. And I'd be happy to engage further. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Shift Shaper Strategies and may not be reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without our express written permission. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.